Hello and welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum podcast. My name is Tane Danger. I'm director of the forum. And today we have our program with Elliot Ackerman, author of The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan. If this is your first time joining us at the Westminster Town Hall Forum podcast, welcome. We are based out of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Our mission is to present voices of conscience addressing the issues of the day from an ethical perspective. All of our programs are free, in person, as a live stream, and as a podcast. That is overwhelmingly thanks to individual donors. Please consider supporting this service with a donation. You can give a gift to the Town Hall Forum online at our website, westminsterforum.org. There you will also find recordings of all of our past forums going back to 1980. There are more than 300 talks by some of the most interesting and influential people in the world. Just visit westminsterforum.org and click on Archive. Today's program with veteran and author Elliot Ackerman was recorded in front of a live audience at Westminster Presbyterian in downtown Minneapolis on April 18, 2023. The first voice you'll hear is Senior Minister at Westminster and Forum Moderator, Tim Hart Anderson. Elliot Ackerman is a former White House fellow, a Marine, and best-selling author. He served five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan, where he received the Silver Star, the Bronze Star for Valor, and the Purple Heart. He is the New York Times best-selling author of multiple books. His work has been nominated for the National Book Award, the Andrew Carnegie Medal in both fiction and nonfiction, and the Dayton Literary Peace Prize. He's a contributing writer for The Atlantic, and his writing often appears in Esquire, The New Yorker, and Time Magazine. His most recent book is a memoir, The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan, about which he will speak today. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcome to the Westminster Tunnel Forum, Elliot Ackerman. Thank you so much, and it's uh, great to be here with you all today at the Westminster Town Forum. Uh, And I'm going to speak uh, a little bit about my latest book, The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan, but also uh, about the wars uh, and really the past 20 years in general. So uh, a question that I often get uh, with this latest book, The Fifth Act, is where did the title come from? Because it sort of sounds as though it might be a treatise on uh, acting or dramatic structures. And uh, the reality was it wasn't a book that I in any way expected to write, despite the fact uh, that I am a veteran of the war in Afghanistan. But uh, in August of 2021, probably like many of you, even though I 
like to consider that I watched the war more closely than most, um, I was shocked at how precipitously uh, events in Afghanistan were deteriorating. And as Kabul fell that summer, I got a phone call uh, from a friend of mine uh, who is an editor. Uh, she has a very successful Substack, And she said, Elliot, uh, would you be willing to write a short piece for me? I'm gathering about four or five people, and I want each of them to write about 400 words. Uh, and I said, well, what do you want me to write on? And she said, well, you know, I'd like you uh, to maybe write on the last 20 years in Afghanistan in 400 words. <laughs> so I said to her, well, you know, that's a pretty tall order. Um, and she said, I know, I know, but, you know, people are just watching this and they haven't been paying attention for a long time and they don't understand what's going on. They just know that it's a tragedy. And it was her use of that word tragedy that allowed me to not only fulfill this seemingly impossible journalistic challenge that she had laid out before me, but also uh, got me thinking about what eventually became the structure of this book, The Fifth Act, which is that tragedies typically occur in five acts. Uh, and so the structure of the book um, are the presidencies that went over these 20 years of war, presidency of President Bush, President Obama, President Trump, and President Biden. You'll note that's only four presidents. The fifth act is the Taliban, the sort of tragic denouement where Afghanistan sits right now. I then went about my business, you know, finished my business of journalism for her that second one of, of August, and I had, uh, as I mentioned in the book, a long-planned family uh, vacation to one of the most delightful places that couldn't seem further from Afghanistan, Italy, with my wife and four kids. Uh, and over that period of time, the real implosion started to occur at the airport. And like so many uh, military veterans, journalists who'd covered the war, activists who had worked inside of Afghanistan, all of my attentions turned to trying to evacuate our allies, many of whom, you know, some of whom were friend of my, friends of mine who had served in Afghanistan, but many of whom were people that I didn't know in what has, was later characterized as a, a digital Dunkirk really a crowdsourced evacuation as we had two weeks to rush people in and out of the airport. And I was involved with really five set-piece evacuation cases um, over that time. And I write about each one of those five in these five acts. And as everyone was working frantically in those last couple of weeks of August to get our allies out of the airport, um, we all knew how this was going to end because people were going to be left behind. It was inevitable. Uh, and underpinning, I think, particularly much of the American efforts, the efforts of Americans who had served in Afghanistan and spent time there, was this idea, particularly acute among those who have served in uniform, which is that we don't leave our people behind. You know, I say it's an idea, it's really an ideal. Um, because oftentimes people do get left behind. But we were trying to hit that benchmark of we're not going to leave anybody behind. But that's not a distinctly American uh, idea or ideal. It's really, it's really a concept that is as old as war itself and as old as the stories that we tell ourselves about war. If we go all the way back to Homer's Iliad, 
Uh, you may or may not remember that the final scene of the Iliad is after Achilles kills the Trojan prince Hector outside the gates of Troy, he drags his body back to his camp behind his chariot. And the final scene of Homer's tale isn't the sacking of Troy, it's actually King Priam, Hector, the Trojan prince's father, he sneaks into Achilles' camp. And we see King Priam begging for the body of his slain son. Why? Because we don't leave our people behind. And this is something I saw so many of my comrades trying to live up to, knowing that they would fail. And in the book, I write about a time in Afghanistan in 2008, an ambush that I was involved in, uh, where I felt like I had not lived up to that standard. And everything that happened in the summer of 2021 dredged up many of these memories, and I thought I would write about one that was close to me because I knew it was dredging up many tough memories uh, for other veterans of the war. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that war now. Um, I've written a lot about Afghanistan, and I would say in the years that I've written about it, whether in fiction or in, in nonfiction, I wrote a novel called Green on Blue that deals with the Afghan war. There's an anecdote that I can never really get away from. It's really a, a memory. Um, when I served in Afghanistan, I served exclusively as an advisor to Afghan troops, mostly special operations troops. And none has stayed with me more than uh, a commander I worked with, a guy named Commander Isak. Commander Isak worked together at a, on a very remote fire base in southwestern Afghanistan. This base was probably no bigger than three or four football fields, and it was walled in by an earthen breastwork. These were called HESCO barriers, but uh, just think large, large barriers made out of sand. And most of the base was the Afghan side of the base. I worked with about a half dozen American advisors on our side of the base, and we lived in these little small plywood huts. And every two weeks, I would go from my little plywood hut and I would have to walk across the base to Commander Isak's plywood hut for what was very ostentatiously known as the operational planning meeting. And I would get to Isak's hut, I would knock on the door and he'd open his door, creak, and there he'd be and he would say, you know, ah, Mr. Elliot, how are you? And I would look at Isak and I'd say, look at my watch and I'd say, you know, Commander Isak, it's, it's time for the operational planning meeting. So oh, yes, yes, of course, come in, come in. And we would sit down in his room, which was you know, very modest. Uh, it was basically a, a cot, a table, a chair. And as we would sit, he would put out a pot of chai for us to drink, sit down his pack of cigarettes, and we would stare at two things on the wall. One would be a calendar, and the other was a map. And so we'd go up to the calendar, and I'd say, okay, well, we've got the next you know, two weeks. You know, I think we you know, probably time to, to plan a patrol. I said, yes, that makes sense. And I'd say, well, what are you thinking, Commander Isak? And Isak, he knew this ground better than anyone. You know, I was one of a parade of advisors that was coming in and out of that base. He'd been there for years. Uh, and so he would go up to the map, you know, smoking his cigarette. And he would maybe, you know, he'd point to one of these towns right on the border with Pakistan, just a, a, you know, a wisp of a town. And he'd be like, ah, you know, Mr. Elliot, we could run a combat patrol up to Mangrete. It's like, there's always very good hunting in Mangrete. I'd say, all right, Isak, that sounds pretty good. So we'd go on the calendar, we'd block out the days, we'd load up the troops in the trucks, probably about 12 or 15 trucks, a couple hundred of us. We'd drive out, you know, two or three days up to Mangrete. And this was, a, at that time, this was a pretty tough corner of the country uh, in a tough part of the war. So usually there's a 50-50 chance 
We would get into some type of a gunfight. We'd go up there, then we'd drive a couple of days back. You know, we would need a couple of days to do maintenance on our vehicles and our weapons, give the guys a couple of days off, and you know, lo and behold, another two weeks would have passed. I would look at my calendar, be like, oh, it's time for the operational planning meeting. And I would go from my plywood hut, cross the base, knock, knock, knock on Isak's door. Creak! Ah, Mr. Elliot! Hey, Isak, you know, time for the operational planning meeting. Oh, yes, 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 come in, come in, come in. And we'd sit down, just like before, right? Pot of chai, pack of cigarettes, calendar, and the map. I'd say, well, you know, Commander Isak, that was like a pretty good operation we ran up in, uh, in Mangrate. Where do you think we should go next? And he'd come up to the map smoking series like, ah, you know, Mr. Elliot, we could always go to uh, Malakshe. It's always very good hunting in Malakshe. And I'd say, all right, let's go to Malakshe. And off we would go. In all the years that I served in Afghanistan, the conversation was never, well, you know, if we go to Mangrate, then we hit them in Malakshe. We could run one last operation up into Rawakaray that will force them across the border. You know, Mr. Elliot, I can go back to, uh, to the farm that I have and be with my family. You can go get your master in fine arts and write that novel you're always talking about. Um, it was never that type of a conversation because it wasn't that type of a war. So what type of a war was it? And I think it's very important now that we be asking ourselves that question. And in my mind, I have sort of divided up my answer to that question into really three buckets. The going to war, the fighting of the war, and then now the returning from war and what we should be learning from it. When I think about the going to war, obviously the precipitating incident is September 11th. Now probably like all of you here, I can remember exactly where I was on September 11th. It was a Tuesday morning, it was blue skies. I was in college, I was a Marine ROTC midshipman at the local uh, chapter uh, in, uh, in Boston. I remember that morning very clearly. But what I actually think about the most isn't Tuesday, September 11th. It is Sunday, September 9th. I remember exactly what I was doing on Sunday, September 9th. Uh, I was living with my brother at the time, he was my roommate, and I had very aggressively solicited our one television, because there was a program that was premiering that night that I desperately wanted to watch. September 9th was the HBO premiere of the television series Band of Brothers. Now, it might not be obvious why that matters, but if Hollywood's job is to understand the zeitgeist in America, harness that zeitgeist and get us all to watch their programming, I would argue there's no greater indicator of what the zeitgeist was in America, what the stories are that we were telling ourselves right before the September 11th attacks, and the fact that Band of Brothers, a show that would go on to be incredibly successful, premiered two days before the attacks. The stories we were primed to tell ourselves and were actively telling ourselves were stories about the greatest generation, were stories about the Second World War, a war that was fought with us cast as the liberators and in which we were victorious in an extremely unequivocal way. So when the war on terror happens, we as a nation find ourselves in a very difficult position in many respects. Unlike any war in recent memory, unlike a war like the Second World War, 
we're not fighting this war to affect a positive outcome, meaning there's no land, no territory we're trying to seize, there's no people we're trying to liberate. That's not what leads to victory in the war. Victory in the war is predicated on a negative outcome, meaning you're winning the war on terror when something doesn't happen, when there aren't more terrorist attacks. That's very difficult, I would argue, for us to get, or for anyone, to get their minds around. It's a war unlike any other. And so very quickly, the war on terror gets divided into different wars. We fight a war on terror, which is predicated on, pre on preventing another 9-11. And I think if you would tell most people on September 12, 2001, that for more than 20 years, there wouldn't be an attack on the US homeland that was comparable to what we just experienced, I think they would say that would be a pretty remarkable accomplishment. Um, I don't think most people felt that the September 11th attacks were, were an aberration. They feel that they might be the new normal in American life. But then we also fight these two different wars, a war to liberate Afghanistan and a war to liberate Iraq. And those are the two wars where we fail. And I would argue that of the three wars that get fought after 9-11, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, and the broader war on terror, there is only one of those wars that we should have fought, which was the war on terror. So this goes to the going to war part of this conversation which is how did we fight that war? Every war the United States has fought since the founding of the Republic has needed a construct to sustain it. And what I mean by that is a war needs to be sustained, broadly speaking, in two ways. In blood, who's gonna fight it? And in treasure, how are we gonna pay for it? So, you know, one example from our history is the American Civil War. The first ever draft this country knows comes to provide the blood to fight the American Civil War. The first ever income tax in this nation's history was also during the Civil War to fund that conflict. We can go forward to the Second World War. The construct of that war, the blood comes from a national mobilization and the treasure, war, you know, war bond drives. Um, if we look at the uh, Vietnam War, that's a war characterized by a very unpopular draft that ultimately leads to an anti-war movement that brings that war to its conclusion. After September 11th, this war had to be fought with a construct to sustain it. That construct becomes our all-volunteer military, that's the blood, and the treasure is it comes out of our deficit. There's never been a war tax, and indeed the first year, or sorry, the last year that the U.S. passed a balanced budget was 2001. The result of this, because our all-volunteer military fights the war, and there is no war tax, so none, of us so none of us have to feel the economic pain, is the American people, not because we're an indifferent people, are anesthetized to the cost of this war. Nobody feels it. And that, more than any other cause, if you want to ask why did this war go on for 20 years, that is why. Because the construct is one in which we were anesthetized to it. For instance, in 2018, and this is before the Trump administration had began negotiating with the Taliban. Uh, Rasmussen put a poll into the field in advance of those midterm elections, as they often do, to ask Americans what issues they care about. When Americans were asked about the war in Afghanistan, 43% of Americans, wasn't that they didn't care about the war in Afghanistan or didn't prioritize it, 43% of Americans in 2018 didn't even know if the war was still going on. 
It's not that they didn't care. They didn't even know at that point. So that is one of the costs of how we've gone to war. An additional cost, and I'll come back to this later, is our ever-widening civil-military divide in which 1% of this population winds up fighting this war for 20 years. And increasingly, military service isn't something that the entire nation experiences, but it becomes the burden of a smaller and smaller and more self-selecting cast of Americans, a trend that aligns with the broader atomization of American culture that we all witness in our lives. Um, this year, it was released that 71% of new US Army recruits come from a family in which one member of that immediate family served in the US military. Now, on the one hand, we might think, well, isn't that great? We're seeing this culture of servers passed down. I would argue that is not a good statistic because that just shows a generalized trend of military service becoming more and more of a subsector of American society. So why does the war in Afghanistan matter? And I think this comes to the ending of the war. Should we maybe just learn our lessons and turn the page? One of the things that has been the most dizzying about the end of the war in Afghanistan was, I would argue, that in August of 2021, we saw probably the darkest moment in the history of the NATO alliance. Let's not forget the war in Afghanistan was always a NATO war, because Article 5 was evoked right after the September 11th attacks. And if we're thinking about August of 2021 and NATO, that was a time when Vladimir Putin was weighing whether or not to invade Ukraine. And certainly on his mind was what would the NATO response be? And what he saw in Afghanistan was an absolutely incompetent NATO response in which the alliance was forced to take terms from approximately 50,000 members of the Taliban. So I would argue uh, this certainly emboldened him. And within six months, I mean, you can drop a plumb line from what happened in Afghanistan to six months later, the decision to invade Ukraine. But what is so dizzying is the fact that within six months of, I would argue, the darkest chapter in NATO's history, we see one of its very brightest chapters, which is the overperformance of the alliance in Ukraine. Uh, and the fact that uh, our European partners have stepped up uh, and the fact that uh, the alliance is held together. So why, why does that matter? Well, when we were watching the invasion of Ukraine, I would argue one of the things that made this so acute was this, this is, and this is all, and why it's still acute, is this is all occurring at a time in which we are seeing a rising authoritarian axis emerging in the world with collaboration between nations like Russia, China, and Iran. And in February of 2022, I would argue, as goes Ukraine, so goes Taiwan. And fortunately, Ukraine held. But still, the question of what the Chinese will or will not do in Taiwan is one that weighs very heavily on anyone who's watching national security matters. So the challenge that we face as Americans and as the West in resisting any type of move that China would make to absorb Taiwan is that the Chinese would be fighting that war in their backyards, whereas we would be fighting it basically from across the Pacific you know, with, our, with some of our partners in East Asia. Wouldn't it be nice 
if the United States, and wouldn't it be strategically advantageous if the United States had two or three strategic air bases that it could rely upon on a country, in a country that shared a border, albeit a very small one, with China. And that is what we gave up when we pulled out of Afghanistan. But at the end of the day, and I'll finish with this, and then I look forward to our conversation and your questions, is the war always comes home. You know, the veterans come home, and the consequence of any war, both the ones we win and particularly the ones we lose, lose return to our shores. And so as much as we're discussing the threat that exists in Ukraine, the threat that exists in China, I would argue that the greatest national security threat that exists to the United States right now is us, our own internal domestic dysfunction. And if we look right now at the conditions that exist in the United States, when we have a very large civil-military divide superimposed on extremely dysfunctional domestic politics, and with elections that I would argue since 2016, we've had a contested election every presidential cycle with the level of contestation becoming more and more great each cycle. This is something that should give all of us pause. Because when you have that mix of conditions, from Caesar's Rome to Napoleon's France, democracy doesn't last long. And we were talking about this before, I'm in no way pessimistic about America, but I think the one thing we have always done as a people if we, is we stare down challenges with very clear eyes. And I think now is the time more than ever to remain clear-eyed. Thank you. Thank you, Elliot Ackerman. This is the Westminster Town Hall Forum coming to you from downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is Elliot Ackerman, veteran and author of America's End in Afghanistan. To watch or listen to past forums, visit our website, westminsterforum.org. And now, Mr. Ackerman, if you're ready, I will present the questions from the audience. The first question has to do with our spring series theme, which is uh, what the world can teach us. Uh, with your experience in Afghanistan and uh, your knowledge of other wars, I'm thinking of Vietnam, uh, what do we learn from these, uh, what do we call them, overseas adventures, these debacles in some ways in which we have engaged? Uh, and what are the lessons from, say, Vietnam, from Afghanistan, from Iraq, that you can share with us? I think um, one of the things that's critical that we never lose sight of, particularly in war, is how important the stories that we are telling ourselves as we go to war and as we continue a war are to any conflict's successful outcome. And so uh, you know, Vietnam is mentioned. You know, if we look back on Vietnam, that was a war that you know, we as Americans fought with a, with a story that was mainly about domino theory, transnational communism, and our fear at the height of the Cold War of its spread. You know, that was why, ostensibly, we were fighting in Vietnam. But if you had asked the Vietnamese people while they were fighting, you know, yes, they were a communist country, but they were fighting a war of national liberation. 
And it took us far too long to understand that that was the motivating factor of our adversary versus any type of idea of the spread of communism across the face of the earth. The analogy I would point in Afghanistan is that after September 11th, we go to war in Afghanistan to stop the spread of transnational terrorism, to destroy Al-Qaeda. And in some respects, we do that, but we start fighting these other wars that are against the Taliban. And I would argue that for years in American life, um, those two groups, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, were conflated. You, you, there, we, didn't really, we didn't really differentiate between them. But their objectives were very different. One was a transnational terrorist organization. You know, the other was a group, uh, repre reprehensible though they may be, but that was fighting a war of national liberation where they wanted all foreigners out of Afghanistan. And it took us far too long to make that differentiation. And I would argue by the time we did, it was too late. Thinking again about Vietnam and Afghanistan, there are images of the conclusion of each of those conflicts that many of us have in our minds. This is the, the American embassy in Saigon with helicopters landing and, and uh, taking people away uh, in a chaotic scene. And then the Kabul airport, chaotic scene repeated. Uh, is it possible, and we get a lot of critique criticism about that ending. Is it possible to end a war in which you have basically lost in a way other than that? Uh, certainly. Um, for us to take it, the Soviets, the Soviet end in Afghanistan uh, was not our end in Afghanistan. So I think it, listen, I think it's very important when we are parsing what happened in Afghanistan to, to sort of, to look at each chapter differently. There's the execution of our withdrawal from Afghanistan in August of 2021, which I think bears a lot of scrutiny, and uh, I'm of the mind that people should be held accountable for that, um, that there was significant incompetence that was displayed. Um, now, on the one hand, uh, there's also the decision to withdraw in general, which is one that I think you know people can debate. I personally think we should have left troops there. I think that the story we were telling about ourselves about Afghanistan um, was the incorrect one, that the only way we could win the war was by removing all U.S. troops down to zero. Historically, if you look at the wars that we've won, um, the, troops, the, tr the war isn't over and the war isn't won when all the troops come home. World War II, we still have troops in Europe, the Korean War, we still have troops in the Korean Peninsula and in Japan. Indeed, the only time the war ends with all of the troops coming home is a war that we lose. So if you want to ensure that you're going to lose the war, pull out every single last U.S. service member. I would say an analogy and a story we should have been telling ourselves about Afghanistan was probably more akin to U.S. involvement in Colombia, which was a 30-year involvement, ended it in our favor, and like Afghanistan, was a narco war. But that wasn't the war that we were telling. So I think the the decision to withdraw, though, is still one that can, that can be debated, but I think the execution of the withdrawal bears uh, a lot of scrutiny, a lot of criticism, and I'll just end with this. The, the administration was betting everything on the idea that there would be what in Vietnam was called the decent interval, the time between our withdrawal and the time between the final outcome occurred in, in Afghanistan. Uh, and that decent interval could have been like, for instance, with the Soviets, they withdrew in 1989, the final collapse came in 1994. Uh, in Vietnam, we left in 72, the collapse came in 75. The administration was banking that there would be some period of time, even if it was just a few months, that that decent interval would occur and it wouldn't happen on their watch. When there was no decent interval and the collapse occurred while US troops were there, there was no plan for that. And that's where I would say I find fault, that there should have been a plan for that. 
And what would that plan have been, been in your mind? I think it would have been a more aggressive, uh, a more aggressive troop numbers that would have allowed us to keep air bases like Bagram and Kandahar in the south and Kabul airfield open. I think that would have gone a long way. Um, when the Taliban were marching into Kabul, uh, we were in active communications with them, and it's been some has been written about this. But there were communications where the Taliban asked us, "Okay, we are taking Kabul. What do you need to conduct your evacuation?" What ground do you want? What neighborhoods do you want us to allow you to have control over so you can pull your people out? And we said, we just want the airfield. And that is why you saw complete chaos and a crush of people at that airfield, because there was no buffer. So I think when you get into the weeds, you know, there should be a post-mortem done so that if we take nothing from this, we at least take some lessons. You referred to uh, several different presidents who've had engagement uh, as commanders-in-chief in Afghanistan. Can you tell us about the Obama surge, which was supposed to have been successful and wasn't? And what, what was the problem with that? Well, I think, you know, I was in Afghanistan when the Obama surge was announced um, in July of 2009. And um, one, of the, one of the truisms of the war in Afghanistan that was often said was that the Americans had the watches, but the Taliban had the time. I mean, you know, we had helicopters, the bases, every piece of technology you can imagine, but the Taliban had the time. So in 2009, when we announced a surge that was supposed to mirror our surge in Afghanistan, that's, that announcement occurred in the speech at West Point. In the very same speech, indeed in the very same paragraph, the president announced his surge, and then also announced the date certain for when the withdrawal would begin, to, which was at the time 2014. So that announced withdrawal was an announcement made for domestic political consumption here in the US. But it was an announcement that Afghans listened to. And so I would be out on patrol in Afghanistan and so much of my bread and butter would also be you know, sitting down with local power brokers, talking to them about why they needed to align themselves with the government and their government of Afghanistan because the best future for their people and their country was gonna to be to support our efforts and we were all supporting the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. And I can't tell you how many meetings I sat in where you know, the local power broker would sort of say, I hear you, I understand, but I, you know, they watch CNN there. I've seen your president. He says you're leaving in 2014. The Taliban shadow governor from my province, who's here every night after you leave, he's going to be here long after 2014. So what am I going to do then? I never had an answer to that that was sufficient. I would argue none of my peers did, and I would argue that ultimately that was the fundamental flaw with the Obama surge. If at any point in our war in Afghanistan, we could have convinced the Taliban, our adversaries, that not only did we have the watches, we also had the time, you know, you might have seen a different outcome. What did withdrawal from Afghanistan mean to people who served there like you and to people who worked with us there whom we left behind? Well, I'm going to ask you your question, and I, I hope this doesn't seem circuitous, but um, it's not over in so much as, you know, what is our withdrawal? Our withdrawal is still ongoing. You know, we were able to evacuate about 90,000 of our Afghan allies here to the United States. When they left, they left under what was called humanitarian parole. Under humanitarian parole, you're not guaranteed the right to work in the United States, and you can only stay for two years. So in the last Congress, there was a piece of legislation that was put forward. Many of you might have, some of you might have heard of it. 
I'm going to take a guess most of you probably didn't because it didn't get in the media much. It's called the Afghan Adjustment Act. It would have adjusted the status of all of our Afghan allies who came here to put them on a pathway so that they could get a green card and eventually become U.S. citizens, and it would have revetted all of them. That Afghan Adjustment Act received bipartisan and bicameral support from both the House and the Senate. It didn't pass. So right now, if the status of those Afghans isn't adjusted, they will be subject to deportation from their country of origin in August of this year. Their country of origin is Afghanistan. People aren't talking about this. Very few people outside the community of Afghan Americans and veterans are focused on this. Um, and it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. So what does the withdrawal tell us? I would argue that maybe that's not where we should be focusing. What does this tell us? Because we still have time to do the right thing on the Afghan Adjustment Act, and we should. And for you as a veteran, you want to applaud that? Go right ahead. <laughs> for you as a veteran uh, of now the three wars you mentioned, Iraq, Afghanistan, and the war on terror, uh, how do you personally feel as a soldier who fought the, in these three different wars? And how do your comrades in arms feel? Um. Well, it's, you know, the, the, the very personal emotions I have about, about the war um, is, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of having served in these wars. And that is a pride that is untethered necessarily from the politics of the war. Uh, the politicians who sent me to fight is a pride that's very much uh, anchored in the friendships that I had uh, during that time and continue to have and the things that I know we did for one another. Um, and I write about those in, in the book. Um, so how do I feel? I feel pride, but it's not pride. It's not a political pride. It's a personal pride um, that is, is grounded in, uh, in, you know, in, in very specific relationships. And you have children. You mentioned your children, and one day you'll have grandchildren, as I do. And what are you going to tell them? What's the story you're going to tell them about your time in, in these wars? You're like, you're like my, this question is like uh, my friend, the journalist, in 400 words or less. Um, <laughs> um, well, I'll, let me, I mean, let me, I'll, I'll answer this in so much. One thing I am very aware of is that I did not, you know, people joined the service from all sorts of avenues, and I did not come from a military family. Um, there was no, there wasn't really a deep legacy of service in my family. Um, so it was a decision that was very much my own. Um, and I am cognizant of the fact that my children um, now, at least in my, you know, my immediate children, you know, they're from a military family. And so a certain question posed to them is you know, whether or not they will serve. And um, I want them to, probably like any of you here with your children or your grandchildren, I want them to you know, follow their passions and be safe. Um, but I would be lying if I didn't say that, you know, if any of my children chose to serve, the moment I saw them put on a uniform would be one that was probably one of the most conflicted moments of my life, in which I would feel both enormous pride and enormous terror all at the same time. But then again, feeling enormous pride and enormous terror watching your children go do something is probably not unique to a former Marine. <laughs> uh, our chaotic exit from Kabul, uh, the end of the Afghanistan war from our perspective, uh, the departure of the troops, has become a hot political topic uh, about uh, the Biden administration or the Trump administration. 
what is your, your view on that? Does it really matter uh, who is responsible for, for that debacle? I think it is sad in, uh, and I think it should be concerning to all of us and is an indicator of um, the dysfunction of our political class that politics with a big capital P is such a feature of our life that sort of no event can occur uh, without it having some type of political bias uh, accorded to it. So the withdrawal in Afghanistan, if you say that you think the withdrawal was very poorly handled and it's a disaster, well now you're, you know, you're with the Republicans, not the Democrats. Or, um, you know, name, name, name your issue. Uh, if you take one side, you're immediately funneled into either the right or the left, and it doesn't give us much space to just be Americans. Um, so am I surprised that the withdrawal from Afghanistan has now become a partisan political issue that we, uh, or at least our political class, are trying to force all of us to see it that way and metabolize it that way? No, I'm not surprised. I think it's unfortunate because, um, you know, when we were fighting that war, we weren't fighting that war as Republicans and the Democrats. We were fighting it as Americans, and we should be contending with what happened and its aftermath as Americans. You, you've spoken personally about your pride of having served uh, in Afghanistan with our, our military. Can you think of anything positive that came out of the conflict for our nation? Well, I, uh, I, I once wrote an article that was, um, I sort of, you know, contra you know, I tried, you know, provocatively tried to title this article. It was, uh, it was right at the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, which was America Won the War on Terror. Um, and I think, you know, after living these events, it was very difficult for people to look at it that way. But, um, you know, it is not just an accident that there was not another major U.S. attack on American soil. I mean, I spent much of my 20s and 30s going up against guys who really, really wanted to repeat those attacks and kill Americans, not just in the Middle East, um, but anywhere that they can find them. And so through great, the great energy of our military, our intelligence services, that has not happened uh, in any significance. So I would argue that we won the war on terror with the corollary that we fought these two other wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, in Afghanistan, it's a war I'd say we unequivocally lost. I don't know how you can argue anything, but that we lost in Afghanistan. I think, ironically, Afghanistan was always the good war because it was only associated with 9-11, and Iraq was always sort of the bad war. And there is this irony that, you know, I wouldn't say we won the war in Iraq, but I actually wouldn't go so far as to say that we lost it. I think you've seen sort of a muddled outcome in Iraq. Um, so, but did any good come out? I would say the good that came out of it is that the homeland has been relatively safe. We certainly have uh, learned how to effectively execute a counterterrorism strategy, but that good needs to be very heavily weighted with, and what did all of that cost us in terms of lives, in terms of resources, and as we are all now waking up toward, to, in terms of taking our eye off the ball in a national security perspective from the threats that were emerging across the world in places like Russia, and particularly in places like China, China, a country that now has a larger navy than the United States. Um, and, uh, and this was allowed to occur because we spent 20 years, you know, fighting these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So are there lessons from Afghanistan for uh, the U.S. to help us avert conflict with China? 
Well, I would argue that it's, um, it's certainly made us war-weary. I think you have a lot of experience in the U.S. military now that you might not have otherwise had. But again, you know, what's the cost of that experience? Yeah, it's great to have war experience, but it's bad to fight wars. Um, and, but I think that it's, you know, it's caused us to look at war in a very clear-eyed way, and hopefully that can help us avert a war with China um, you know, in a way that maybe we weren't thinking about war on September 9th, 2001. Let's talk now about our divided American house. Uh, you refer to the, this growing gulf between a civilian population and a very small military uh, world, really, in a way, within our nation. Uh, and you also talk about how that could very easily exacerbate some of the uh, conflicts we see in our culture and our politics. What's the military's role in helping us sort out the, the political and cultural divides we feel, if any role? Well, I mean, ideally it should be nothing aside from uh, being a, uh, in an active way. I think one of the things our military has done for us in the past, it has been both a great engine of social mobility in the United States, which it still is. Um, you know, anyone, anyone who can enlist in the U.S. military and does a four-year contract honorably, receives a GI Bill that will let them go to most any uh, higher educational institution in this country. The thing that it has no longer, no longer is in the same way is a great societal leveler. Now, if you look at the zip codes that have the smallest representation in the U.S. military, demographically speaking, they are the zip codes that are socio socioeconomically the lowest 10% in this country and the highest 10%. And it just sort of blends in from there. So the U.S. military is no longer the societal leveler that it once was. You have an increased civil-military divide when increasingly the military is recruited from, uh, from, certain, from geographically certain areas and from certain families. And because of that, uh, we don't necessarily understand intuitively or have a great deal of military literacy in our country at moments of domestic national crisis, which sort of an electoral crisis, which seemed to be kind of hitting us in ever-increasing ways. Um, and, you know, I can paint, you know, consider many a scenario where, you know, there is violence in the streets and one, uh, one elected official or another might call on the U.S. military to deal with that violence because local authorities can't deal with it. And if that elected leader is not considered legitimate, then are the orders that leader is given to the military legitimate? Uh, and the U.S. military is a nonpartisan entity for sure, but I mean, everyone who wears the uniform, you know, they, like, like any American, they have their political beliefs, and uh, oftentimes I feel we're putting them in situations that are impossible, and uh, we should be very, very careful. I'll just finish with this analogy. I think I was saying this in your office. Um, I feel like in our, in our electoral cycle, it's sort of like we have, you know, two groups, Republicans and Democrats, and they're sitting in a room, and they're maybe, you know, throwing matches at each other, taunting each other's little lit matches, and none of them are cognizant of the fact that they've got a five-gallon can of gasoline sitting in the corner, which is our military. Um, and that military, it's not like it's going to break one way or another. It's not like the military is going to support the problems or support the Democrats. It's going to do what militaries do when there's a crisis of conscience in an organization. People will split, and they will follow their conscience. And we shouldn't be asking anyone who wears a uniform in a moment of national crisis to just follow their conscience and go to the right or to the left. That would be catastrophic for our country. We saw that recently in Israel, uh, where the, some, some of the leading military officers, uh, hundreds and hundreds of them, 
made their perspective known that they would not follow orders if the orders were um, something they felt against their conscience. Uh, is, is that something you could see happening in, in the U.S.? I mean, respectfully, we've seen it. I mean, election to election, on the right and to the left, we have retired generals and very recently retired senior intelligence officials speaking out very vocally and, and politically. Um, you know, it can be debated whether or not that is a, a good or a bad thing. The way I often see it reported in the media is that it gets reported that you know, a group of generals has signed a letter without it being very clear that these are retired generals, so they're civilians. And, and because there's this lack of military literacy, I feel like too many Americans conflate the two so that the next time you know, three or four active duty generals speak out, um, it won't necessarily be seen as anything too different. So I'm, you know, I'm very cautious of our military and even retired military becoming too involved in our politics, but I'm also aware that the history of our nation is one where our military has played a role politically. For instance, our, our first president was a general. So. Now, you just touched in a conversation with me earlier, you touched on the possibilities that, that could help perhaps begin to mend some of the uh, internal conflict in the U.S., one of which was a national draft reinstated, uh, or uh, we had a town hall forum speaker last fall who called for a national year of service mandatory for all 18-year-olds. Uh, do you support something like that? I do. I, um, I, support, I support the draft. Um, I, I wrote a cover story calling for the reinstatement of the draft, um, but a, a limited draft in so much as I think we often, when you say to most Americans, well, there's going to be a draft, the assumption both in the military and outside of the military is that suddenly our military will be 100% composed of conscripts. And that's actually never been the case in American life. We actually look the Vietnam War, which is probably the war we, could, we associate most closely with the draft, 25% of those in uniform were actually drafted, 75% were volunteers. Now, obviously, the specter of the draft caused many people to volunteer, but still, it wasn't exclusively draftees. World War II actually had a higher percentage of draftees. It was about 50% were draftees in the Second World War. So what I have advocated for, and if anyone's interested, you can check out this piece, um, was that we have about 5% of our military be draftees. Um, that would be about 60,000 people in uniform. Uh, I argue that they should, if you are drafted, you can only be drafted into the combat arms, so infantry, tanks, artillery, so we don't have a situation where people are cutting deals to get cushy jobs. Um, and, uh, and that would be uh, men and women. Women can serve unrestricted in the U.S. military right now, so it should be every uh, young person coming of age. And in my mind, it's not the draft that we necessarily need, it's the specter of the draft. And imagine how the conversation in this country would be so much different if every person knew as their child was coming of age that they had a, you know, one in a hundred chance, one in 50 chance of having to serve for two years. Suddenly we would be all paying much closer attention to issues of war and peace. And I assure you one thing, we wouldn't be fighting any 20-year wars. Um, so not everybody agrees with that, but that is sort of where I have wound up. One of the things that surprises me um, is I very much pride myself on having come out of this professional military. Most of my comrades in arms uh, were professional, and, and many of them still serve, you know, special operators. And those are the ranks in which um, there's pretty much consensus that the way we fought these wars is, uh, is unhealthy for our republic, and that we should have a system of service where 
everyone has skin in the game. That doesn't mean everyone is wearing a uniform, but it means everyone's paying attention because they probably have someone in their life, you know, who, who may be serving, so. You referred to t two dimensions of, of war. One is the, the human side, the, the blood, and then the treasure, the financial side. Uh, do you advocate a, a, a funding of uh, our wars through a war tax or more bonds or? Yes. Good. So <laughs> in light of that, are we not continuing to have what might be called wars or at least troops in combat places we Absolutely. don't know about? I, I, I think that would be a great way. I mean, we should save that for troops in combat places. That's what we could call wars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. I thought of that myself. No, that's very good. <laughs> I'm going to steal that. Um, well, yes, and this is, I mean, listen, this gets to the sort of the way that the war in Afghanistan ended and why it's so important to understand the language we use and the stories we tell ourselves. The rhetoric that was being presented was why all the U.S. troops had to come back from Afghanistan was the president said, because it's time to end America's longest war. Okay, what does it mean to end a war? You know, we still have troops in Syria, in Iraq, in the Horn of Africa, in, uh, in places like Niger, you know, they are, they're drawing imminent danger pay. That's basically what that they call combat pay. So are we at war in those countries? You know, then a month after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the, the, the president at the United Nations General Assembly said, for the first time in 20 years, America is not at war. Well, that doesn't seem to be accurate based off of this criteria. You know, this isn't a semantic game. I mean, this, 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 this matters. So, um, so yes, I would argue we are still at war, but I would ar also argue that we are, that we're, that we're not at war. And that the reason, and that going forward, a lesson we should take from this is this sort of narrative that has existed in American life for a long time, which is the only way to win a war is to bring all the troops home, is a fallacy. It's never been the case in our history. So we need to approach national security with sort of a more nuanced and sophisticated understanding of what it means to go to war and to fight a war. And I would argue probably one of the ways to get there would be if more Americans had exposure to the critical issues of war and peace by being involved in those decisions as citizens. And so long as we have a system in which a minority of volunteers do all the fighting, and the war goes on the credit card, we're never gonna have the type of civic engagement we need for decisions around war and peace, and we're gonna make bad decisions around war and peace. We have time for one last quick question. That is, uh, knowing what you know, and having been through what you've been through, and by the way, thank you for your service to our country. Are you hopeful for America? Um, I'm very hopeful. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm hopeful because, hey, I have four children, so I can't afford to not be hopeful. Um, but B, because, you know, we are, are fundamentally a good people and we do the right thing. And that might sound naive, but I, I, I believe that in my bones. Uh, I feel like we are just, at this particular moment, being ill-served um, by our political class, but our political system. And by system, I mean uh, not just how people get elected, but our systems of media, the ways we communicate with one another. And we need to do the thing Americans always do. We need to innovate. 
and we need to get ourselves out of this death spiral we've been in the last few years. Um, and uh, I don't know how we're going to do it, but we've always seemed to do it, and I'm optimistic we're going to do it again. Thank you, Elliot Ackerman. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's Westminster Town Hall Forum podcast. A reminder that you can listen back to more than 40 years worth of our programs on our website, westminsterforum.org. Technical direction at the Town Hall Forum is done by Keith Kopatz. Our theme music was composed by Kenneth Bean and performed by the Copper Street Brass. Our moderator is Tim Hart Anderson. My name is Tane Danger, director of the forum. Thanks so much, and we hope to see you again at the Westminster Town Hall Forum.